turns out it's not just executives who care about the bottom line impact of artificial intelligence. Here at Tech Emergence, we focus on the applications, the possibility space of AI, and the implications, what's likely to actually take place with AI in given sectors. And while business leaders have to know this, another group that has to know the same sorts of information are government leaders and policymakers, who also have to consider how technology could be used to serve their goals, where this technology might fit in for their objectives, for their bottom line, and for the results that they're after. Recording this right now, I'm just back from speaking at the Palace of Nations, which is the United Nations building in Geneva, about the economic impacts of artificial intelligence and how it might be applied in government. And for the next entire month here in September, I'm going to be basically traveling the world at the behest of the World Bank, presenting some of our in-depth research on AI and healthcare, which we've been researching now for over five years and have a pretty robust understanding of sort of where diagnostics and other technologies can be applied. And fortunately, there's a lot of social good and sort of public sector focus on the use of artificial intelligence in just the last 18 months. We have new institutes and research centers opening all around the world. This week, we're fortunate enough to have Anandan Padmanabhan, who is the CEO of the Wadwani Institute for Artificial Intelligence in India. Previously, he was the managing director for Microsoft Research in India. And Anandan speaks with us about where and how the public sector should consider leveraging artificial intelligence and what some of those challenges are, namely reaching some of the people who are not maybe on the latest iPhone, who are not sitting at a desk with a white collar and a lovely computer in a nice office all day long, but who nonetheless still need to be reached for education, still need to be reached for healthcare, still need to be reached in important ways to better their lives, and it might be the government that actually pushes forward and gets that done. Some of the challenges with reaching these crowds and these audiences and developing solutions to serve this unique group of people, which obviously in a nation like India, where Anandan is based, this is a major, major concern, a country of 1.3 billion people. Some of these same lessons for developing applications for folks that might not be technology savvy or might not have that much access to technology are many of the same problems that other people doing business in the developing world are going to have to grapple with as well. So some of the same points that Anandan articulates here in terms of how we reach and better the lives of folks in the developing world are going to be lessons that business folks should also tune into. And without a doubt, some of the ideas for AI for good that Anandan articulates that Wadwani is going to be working on in India are certainly going to see their way into other nations, other countries who are aiming to apply AI in the public sphere as well. So a nice sort of frontier view of where AI can be applied for public good and also some interesting considerations about AI in the developing world that is in some ways much more challenging than reaching folks who already have an iPhone 7S or whatever the latest one is these days. I have no idea. So without further ado, this is Anandan Padmanabhan. I'm Dan Figella, and you are listening to AI in Industry. Let's hop right in. So Anandan, where I figured we'd start off, I know this is going to lead into some interesting examples that you folks are working on now, is on how the next 3 billion, as you put it off the microphone, people will be reached by artificial intelligence, how it'll tangibly benefit their lives. There's a lot of people, particularly in India, they might not have the internet, they might just barely be getting mobile phones, they're certainly not doing much by way of mobile shopping. How does AI extend to bring benefit to their lives as well? So to answer the question, let me back up a bit. 
if you look at uh, the excitement about AI, I think Andrew Ng or somebody said AI revolution is as important as electricity or something yeah, of that yeah, sort. Yeah. I don't know, you know, how much people believe in it, but what's clear is that there is a growing belief that this technology can be extremely transformative in the way in which how our lives will be made better. And in some cases, you know, there are fears about wars and all that. However, if you look at where the concentration of this technology and its benefit, they are primarily limited to the haves. In other words, in the world, typically this is the people who are in the middle class or upper middle class or the rich people, people who are part of the mainstream market economy, people who go to stores, people who do online shopping, you know, whatever else, and they have reasonable amount of income. In India, which is a country of about 1.3 billion people, there are about maybe 300, 400 million people who are in the segment. But that means there are, you know, about 800 to 900 million people who are not part of this, you know, process, part of this economic, you know, machine. And overall in the world, what I mean by the next 3 billion, there are about 3 billion people that are not starving and are not in extremely dire straits, but whose needs are not served well by the current economic forces and who are capabilities economically are not good enough for them to participate in this process. How do they function? They're farmers and they're merchants and whatever, and they have their business and so on. But when it comes to things like education or healthcare or guidance with respect to their own profession, say farming is a great example, they rely a lot on government programs and charitable non-governmental organizations, which work very closely with government programs. In terms of how do they get taken care of, well, government programs, you know, usually have something at every village and city and district level to handle these issues. They function somewhat, but there is a lot of inefficiency and there's also a lot of lack of knowledge. And the programs are usually the capacity to serve the number of people is way less than the number of people who need it. I mean, the demand is way more than supply, inevitably. The professions are not rewarding for the officers that are work in them. And then the secondary, there are actually a lot of frontline workers who are sometimes volunteers, sometimes paid people that are actually trying to make personal contact with the end users, end customers, if you will. Part of the reason being that their capacity with respect to education, literacy, and ability to participate in technology is actually limited. And so it requires a little bit of translation by these frontline workers. And third, of course, you know, some services can be direct. So typically, how do I see AI, like any other technology, enter through these three means? I think there are many cases in which the government program officers can you know, improve their efficiency and also be more effective in focusing on the real problems as opposed to overwhelmed with you know, a lack of proper information. Because AI has the power of teasing out the correlation between real information that's contained in the data and the outcome better than any other technology, right? Which is one reason we all like it. What AI seems to do is to look at data and say, hey, what aspect of this data actually is relevant for this outcome and kind of try to find similarities in different places and highlight it. And so I think those things can be of help in all cases. And in many cases, for instance, even simple things like communication, like speech to speech translation, you know, or speech-oriented kind of ways of using technology for small languages. These are things that can actually turn out to be very useful. But ultimately, I think it's really through these channels, government officers, frontline workers, and in some cases, direct use as well. Got it. And of course, you know, the economy at large expands as more and more people participate and have higher skills to contribute in different ways and whatnot. And so I think it's in the, the world's interest to sort of see that rise 
of those folks, you know, who yeah. are sort of maybe outside of the loop right now in terms of that mainstream economy, as you kind of phrased it, right. maybe we could look at a couple examples of how this is happening. I think there's a lot of people reading about AI for good, but maybe who are less familiar right. with what are some of the initiatives and how is this working? Because I think there's some curious analogies for business and you folks are obviously yeah. doing a lot here. What are some examples you like? These are early days, by the way, so of to be course. clear. I think of one of the things we found out when we got started there's been a lot of excitement about our doing it. I mean, we were fortunate that the Prime Minister of India came to inaugurate our institute. Why did he come to inaugurate our institute? Because he realized acutely that this technology needs to be harnessed for social good. And if somebody is stepping up, you know, not for profit to do that, naturally, you know, he wants to be there and to help us set our agenda as well as to show, show the support at the national level. We have received a lot of support from all organizations in both the state government here in Maharashtra and the central government and other governments in India. And so why are they doing that? Basically, the point is, you know, take an example, let's say in public health, right? Public health is primarily through various types of government-initiated hospitals and clinics. At the nodal level, there are about 150,000 what are called sub-centers, and these are typically within the distance of a village or a neighboring village or whatever. And then there are a few thousand what are called primary healthcare centers. And then there are district level hospitals. So people would like to go to the sub-centers to get proper medical care. However, there's not adequate number of medical trained medical professionals that can actually you know, manage this and provide the kind of help. So often the needs are not well addressed. It could be maternal and child care, or it could be, you know, dealing with epidemical diseases like, you know, TB or malaria. And so the frontline workers are often out there trying to cope with it, but, you know, they're not trained medical professionals. Here's an example where I think the power of AI technology can actually sort of fill the gap, if you will, right, where we don't have a trained medical professional look for systems that would provide automated guidance by understanding your symptoms and understanding how it's done in other places and providing you some kind of guidance or at the least triaging so that you can reduce the dependence on the few qualified medical professionals. Yeah, right? yeah, and yeah. So health is a great example. Another one, you know, that we are looking at this, by the way, as I speak. And one thing I should mention, though, is that the challenge is not purely a technological one. The challenge is actually closing the loop. You have to understand what exactly is the user experience or use case that you want to drive that makes sense. Because you can't just throw the technology uh, because no, not even people close, may not yeah. be capable of using it, right? Yep, yep. So you want to work with the partners that have invested a lot of time, government partners or other NGOs, who understand how to work with these audience or customers. And you then, you know, vector your technology towards that direction. And you try to kind of harness the power of AI, but in a way in which it can be translated more effectively to be useful. And that process is a very close partnership process. So it's not like I can sit in my lab and do something and throw it over and somebody will catch it. Right from the beginning, we are actually working on close partnership with a number of these NGOs and government organizations. And that's the only way you can do it. And ultimately, it's the government that has the capacity to scale at a national level, right? Even if you do it in a region, when you want to take it to a national level. So you kind of have to keep them involved right in the beginning. And that's a complex process. Yeah, obviously, part of the challenge is not just can we get a machine that can scan somebody's eyeball with a particular attachment to a Samsung phone and have it determine whether right. or not they have a particular disease. Okay, that was probably solved two years ago. The bigger issue is right. 
how do we get folks the equipment? How do we make sure that they can use it? How do we make sure the phone has some charge by the time they get out in these rural areas? And then how do we put this right. into the normal loop of what they do? And can we actually change that behavior? That's the same issue that startups have, right? I mean, you guys need to sort of struggle with the same user experience problems. Yeah. Right. In fact, I think one of the big challenges startups have is really the market development process, right? Technology is one component. How do you actually develop your market? And that problem is more acute in the case of social good because it's not a single uniform market and the market you cannot directly reach. You have to go through these partners and you have to get those partners on board in the beginning. So this kind of a thing, doing innovation and R&D for social good is actually something that has not been attempted simply because of the challenges associated with the process of getting into the market. So we are excited to do that and I think we have a good start. And we believe that, you know, as we do it, we'll learn what are some of the bigger challenges and what are the, some of the ways in which we can get around them. Yeah. Addressing, looking at maybe what are some of the health issues that affect the most people and what are the solutions right. that maybe fix things the most quickly or treat things the most quickly? And is there a way to sort of find the best match in terms of a utilitarian good here? I guess yeah. that would be partially right. the hope. Now, healthcare is definitely part of the mix. What's another example yeah. of ideas that you folks are exploring? You know, you've got you know funds to work with. Yeah. You've got the good graces of your nation's leader. You know, what are the other exciting areas maybe for government collaboration? So, for example, agriculture is a natural thing, right? Because if you look at Indian economy, it's still very agrarian. And one of the big challenges the country has been facing is that smallhold farmers are constantly in debt. You know, because their you know investments in small lots ultimately it doesn't fray off fruitfully always due to any number of things, climate yeah. conditions, soil problems, diseases or whatever. And more importantly, market dynamics, right? Because, you know, in order for them to succeed, they have to have a unique positioning in the market and they're not equipped enough to know how to manage and control the market forces. Once again, I think, you know, if you look at there's data available with respect to climate or soil or whatever, there are a number of companies and organizations that have sensors, you know, that are measuring these kind of things. There is technology for actually looking at crops and sort of detecting diseases. There is also, you know, people who are well-versed in understanding how markets play with each other. And again, we are looking at AI as a way of combining these things to potentially give some guidance and advice to the farmers. You know, maybe the offices that are helping the farmers or whichever way it works. So the agriculture is another area where we see a lot of potential for impact. And, you know, if we can reduce farmers' loan burden, I think the Prime Minister of India had... a goal of doubling farmers' income in the next five years. And if we can contribute to that through some way of, you know, efficiently and effectively allowing the farmer to use their resources, that'll be a good thing. One of the reasons why we took this not-for-profit approach, and I really should thank, you know, Dr. Ramesh Vadwani and Mr. Sunil Vadwani for, course, yeah. uh, you know, generously funding this and committing, you know, $3 million a year together for 10 years. And you need that because there's not going to be early realization of any profits or revenue or anything like that. Somebody has to be willing to, you know, kind of fund it for long enough to see the technology actually vetted, de-risked and things like that. So I think somebody has to make that commitment. Yeah, I'm glad they're doing it. For sure. And I think probably it's a win for the world, the fact that people are seeing an opportunity of this technology for good, because certainly there will be plenty of nonprofit benefits and technologies that can spin out. But obviously, when the use cases are fleshed out, and all of a sudden, we have a bunch of, you know, poorer farmers using a new kind of technology, 
it's probably going to spur people to think up other ideas and hopefully continue to improve that process. But like you said, if someone's trying to make money in the first two years, they're probably going to not really even begin with the innovation process. Yeah. So the (laughs) the nonprofit world, I think, is going to spurn some of the initial use cases that will then spin off into what you called kind of the regular economy, the mainstream economy. So this is definitely part of that ecosystem. Let me ask you one final question. This is a big initiative for India. Uh, Again, you have the good graces of the leader of India. And there's a lot of opportunity, obviously, to kind of do some work on your side. If we span out even broader to just the leadership of India in general, what are some maybe hopes that you have for how India can make this kind of machine learning and AI revolution that's going on right now? Turn into a net win. You know, we've got these social initiatives that you have going on kind of from a high level. What do you think that's going to take? So essentially, your question is very timely because just a couple of days ago, the National Institution for Transforming India, NITI, which is like the... We interviewed them as well. Yeah, Yeah. actually released an AI strategy paper and we have contributed to that paper, by the way. Oh, great. And that paper very much addresses what would be India's AI strategy. Now, NITI is not alone in it. There's a similar kind of effort at the Ministry of IT and previously by the Ministry of Commerce and Industry. And if you look at the various strategy papers and, you know, white papers that have been produced, there's a fair amount of convergence. The most important area of convergence is the following. What could be India's sort of leadership position in AI? And that's AI for all, right? See, if you look at various countries, you know, they have different, you know, US or China or Germany or Japan or France or whatever, they all have their AI strategy approaches and they are tailored to that country's needs and opportunities. In India in particular, actually can be the country that leads to our AI for all, simply because that's a problem we have to solve. And if we solve it, it's not only useful for India, but for the rest of the world where there are a lot of such people. So if you look at the message on these documents, they all kind of highlight the fact that India's real opportunity is really doing AI for all, which means AI for social good. It's kind of a nice sweet place for us to be in, in a sense, because yeah. India has been a country where it's always been a technology test bed for social efforts. And it's got enough of technological know-how that we can actually reasonably get it done as well here. Ah, basically, let me see if I can word this properly, Ananda, and see if we can end on this yeah. note. Is it the idea, and I'll, I'm going to be sure to be reading the Niti Aayog report. We actually talked to one of their leaders while they were writing it for the same kind of AI in India piece. It sounds like because, you know, India has all of these sort of emerging economy, you know, issues, concerns, and clearly opportunity for improvement, because that's the case and because there's going to be a lot of effort spanned there, why don't we embrace that? Why don't we double down on that? And then why can't that be used everywhere to lift people from poverty, to improve health, to improve education, to find ways to make that scale through governments and other kinds of opportunities? It sounds like that's part of the synopsis here. Am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, that's a way of putting it. I think, you know, there are, of course, many other things because, of course, we also want Indian mainstream economy to grow. But where there is a unique sort of opportunity for India is really going to be inclusive AI or AI for all. Cool. I certainly have my fingers crossed for the next uh, few years (laughs) that you folks have some great initiatives underway. We're obviously going to be following AI for good across all of its various and sundry sort of permutations in different nations. And really glad that we got the opportunity to chat. So, Ananda, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us here. Yeah, thank you for asking me. Yeah.
that's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. Uh, I'm Dan Figella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.